Welcome to It's Our Money with Ellen Brown, a look behind the curtain of global finance and monetary control with one of the foremost experts in the field. Author of the bestseller Web of Debt and the Public Bank Solution, Ellen Brown's groundbreaking work began the movement to create new American public banks. We'll look at issues surrounding the world of money and the systems and powers that control it, as well as the progress being made on the public banking frontier. The program is underwritten by Public Banking Associates, a national consultancy of experts advising government leaders pursuing creation of their own public banks at publicbankingassociates.com. So the purpose of having a national bank, which, which Hamilton pioneered, uh, is to emit large-scale credit. It's to be a, a, a servant of the people, to be an instrument of the nation state for the purpose of pulling people out of poverty, enhancing the powers of productivity, investing in large-scale, long-term projects that normally private finance would never have the patience or be willing to take the sorts of risk that one would need to take to build an Erie Canal, although that was partially funded by private finance, but it was an initiative that involved the sovereign backing of the state. That's Matthew Errett, a consummate historian and observer of the real stories behind the cultural and economic tenets and systems that we've inherited in the landmarks of our society. Today, Alan talks with Matt about the evolving principles and vested interests that animated the American Revolution and the international intrigue that accompanied it. Hello, I'm Walt McCree, Ellen's co-host and senior advisor to the Public Banking Institute. On this program, we try to focus on the relevant drivers of our current monetary and economic realities, understanding that what we see around us in government policy and the economy isn't necessarily what's at play behind the curtain of finance. We like the Wizard of Oz metaphor. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. So, we like to pay attention to what's behind that curtain. And with a guest like Matt Errett, whose new book, The Clash of Two Americas, Volume 2, The Unfinished Symphony, we get an extraordinary tour of the historical landscape that created our economic and political history. There's so much to tell, and Matt does such a thorough job in telling it, that we're going to cover this material in two segments of the program. In the last half of today's show, we complete our conversation with Dr. Thomas Marwa, a global scholar on public banking at the University College of London. Thomas's new book is called Public Banks, Decarbonization, Definancialization, and Democratization, which describes in part how public banks around the world have taken a leadership role in investing in initiatives for green energy production. Even though public banks have fewer assets than the private money banks, they outperform them in the amount of investment given to this critical task. Yet another example of how public banks excel in meeting the rising and changing demands of public interest. Now let's join Ellen and her conversation with author and historian Matt Errett, looking at the foundations of our national economic and political history. My pleasure to be speaking with Matthew Errett, who is editor-in-chief of the Canadian Patriot Review and co-founder of the Mon Montreal-based Rising Tide Foundation. 
He's written uh, hundreds of articles ahead of me, I think, and uh, at least six books. I count six books. The latest is The Clash of Two Americas, Volume Two, The Unfinished Symphony. So we we interviewed you earlier on Volume One. So now we're picking up with uh, the death of McKinley around 1900. Uh, greetings. <laughs> Good to talk hey, to you. Hey, Ellen. You call it the two Americas. Now, obviously, you're not talking about North America, South America. I mean, you're talking about the two faces that the United States has presented to the world, like over the last 300 years. One is benign and one is sort of more uh, imperial or anyway. Do you want to explain what you mean by the two Americas? Well, speaking as a Canadian, um, since I'm, I'm based in Montreal and, and I run the Canadian Patriot Review, um, I got to tell you, like going through the education system here, I was wired at a very young age before I had any real political awareness of anything to hate and kind of fear uh, the United States. And that's just something that is built into for many generations, the educational process for Canadians. This goes back, I think, over well over 150 years it's gotten really bad though so there's a, a certain image painted of the usa as the the empire the global supervillain of sorts which unfortunately when you look at the behavior of the united states especially since the murder of john f kennedy and his brother um it has increasingly lived up to those very negative expectations so it sort of played into um this i'll use a harsh word demonic sort of imagery that we're being fed and Canadians are, are often told that's all it is. There's nothing else since 1776 when we were enlightened enough to avoid being a part of a messy, bloody revolution that didn't need to happen, we are told, because if we just waited with patience from our slightly overbearing um, you know, mother country, Great Britain, she would have naturally abolished slavery and given us our freedoms anyway. We didn't have to go through that type of destructive process to create a republic. We're happy being a, a constitutional monarchy. That's that's what we are. And um, this unidimensional image of the USA is presented and it creates, um, for me at least, it, it took me a long time before I started realizing that no, 1776 and the events that were put into motion by Benjamin Franklin and many of his collaborators and in our last interview on, on my volume one, we talked about the international dynamics surrounding the events of 1775 to 83 which involved people within high positions of influence, obviously in France, we know that, but also within Spain, within uh, Germany, Prussia, uh, Poland, uh, Ireland, India. We had the, the Hyder Ali and the Mysore Rebellion that, were, were, that saw themselves in a common fight against the British Empire to create a new type of world, which is the point, the Muslim Hyder Ali Rebellion <laughs> against the British Empire, which absorbed, you know, like something like 20% of the British uh, military fleets into trying to put that down. Hyder Ali's son, Tipu Sultan, had written letters to the Continental Congress saying, we are in this together for a new world. Russia, you know, Catherine the Great was organized through her, her colleague, who was the a woman who was the head of the Russian Academy of Sciences and a great friend of Ben Franklin, who he met in France. Morocco, the, the you know, Sidi Mohammed, the emperor of Morocco, was also organized by Benjamin Franklin's networks to also give protection to American ships against Barbary pirates that were under the influence of the British Empire. So, you know, it was an international dynamic. And so we're not given any of that. And I don't even think Americans are really given that anymore. Uh, maybe it was known in previous generations a bit more, but today it's, it's, it's obscured. 
But so you start looking into, well, what is the United States? Why do these American presidents, why do so many of them die while in office? You know, eight of them. Um, and if you add in Alexander Hamilton, who was shot, who had presidential material, uh, who was shot and killed by Aaron Burr, the guy who basically was the founding father of Wall Street, the creator of the Bank of Manhattan, before he escaped to, to, the, to London for five years uh, to avoid going to prison. Why did all of these Americans get shot? What's the common denominator going all the way up to John F. Kennedy and his brother and, and Martin Luther King? What, what is there a common sort of policy that they're tapping into and channeling? And, and sure enough, when the more you start pursuing that uh, question, the more discoveries are to be found. And so in the course of volume one, which tackled 1776 to 1890, it uh, dealt with that period of history in looking at, you know, sometimes people today have given it the term deep state, you know, and every country has its own deep state, you know, something that is embedded within the structures of power, academia, media, um, military affairs, banking, that is interconnected. It's, it's different parts of the same beast. And we have it in Canada, we have it in the US, we have it in, in every, almost every country, I think every country, you could find aspects of this type of thing. And so I tried to paint the picture of some of the drama the, that is lesser appreciated around the Civil War, around uh, the battle to just how did America grow from 13 colonies to being the thing we know of it as today. How did that happen? Was there a fight? Were there different intentions, different political agencies? And, and so there are two traditions, two opposing currents. And when you do look at the deaths of those greater American uh, leaders from Warren Harding, I mean, that's, that's a 20th century one, but you can go to Harrison, uh, Zachary Taylor, Lincoln. You could look at uh, even, even people like Vice President Garrett, Garrett Hobart uh, under McKinley and McKinley himself and Garfield or, you know, all of these great leaders who tend to die while in office are are actually invoking what you have written about quite a bit, which I found very inspiring, um, which is a certain principle of constitutional banking, constitutional uh, foreign policy, like the idea that the constitution is not just ink on parchment, but it is a governing principle of finance, of foreign policy, of cultural policy, of the general welfare, right? And that all people are endowed with certain inalienable rights. That's in the, the Declaration of Independence. And, uh, and so the purpose of having a national bank, which, which Hamilton pioneered, uh, is to emit large scale credit. It's to be a, a, a servant of the people, to be an instrument of the nation state for the purpose of pulling people out of poverty, enhancing the powers of productivity, investing in large scale, long term projects that normally private finance would never have the patience or be willing to take the sorts of risk that one would need to take to build an Erie Canal, although that was partially funded by, by private finance, but it was an initiative that involved the sovereign uh, backing of the, of the state or the transcontinental railway, or more recently, things like the Apollo space program or things like that. You need to have that initiative that is taken by a sovereign nation state. So in volume two, which is called Open Versus Closed Systems Collide, with a picture of uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski and John F. Kennedy, a painting of him with an explosion in between. I try to just get across from 1890 until the present time, how this has played out, especially with the uh, death, the murder of William McKinley. Yeah, you also called it uh, republicanism versus hereditary, you know, two systems of control. One is hereditary, meaning like the king or, you know, something totally top down. And yeah. then Republican being that we are all sovereign 
and like all, like every race, et cetera, and uh, with certain inalienable rights. So it's not, they're not even built into the constitution. They're actually something that you're born with. All those freedoms are, I think that's what attracts people to the, the American model. What detracts all the immigrants here is that it's a form of freedom that they didn't realize, didn't have at home with, with their own um, top-down sort of governments. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and, and we underestimate just what a revolution of morality that was to be able to create a nation founded upon the idea of a rejection of hereditary rights. Like, because before the American Republic was, in, was set up, all the world knew were systems of governments founded upon, I'm born into a, a certain family, and that simple birthright gives me the right to take away or bestow rights on the, the slave families, people born into the lower caste. It was a caste structure with certain titles of nobility and things that just you know enhance the egotistical uh, elitism, which is just always the, the fertile soil for, for corruption is a, a sense of, of elitism that, you know, we are sovereign. In, and all of the, the, the oligarchical systems before the United States organized themselves around certain hereditary institutions. You know, you had one sovereign, you had one king or queen who was like the prima inter pares, the first among equals. And they were the ones who then, again, like in the Canadian constitutions, not that we really have a constitution, but in our charter, you know, our, our series of charters going back to the 18th century, we got a whole series of these things that really just portray, including the, the, the British North America Act or the uh, 1982 Charter. They say that we have these rights. It seems right for life, liberty, happiness, like things that are very similar to that of the United States, but it's not recognized as inalienable. Her Majesty has bestowed upon us. And, you know, in our constitution, it says that our nation will be uh, enshrined as a constitution is the 1867 version for the benefit and interests of the British Empire. How is that a nation, you know, versus the United States, which is for the general welfare of the people, for by, a nation for by and of the people is a very different concept. So unfortunately, the US has not always acted the part of its ideals, as is, you know, often the case with all of us, we have ideals and we go through times in our lives where we sometimes make bad decisions, we find addictions, that take more and more control of us as personalities and we can decay, we can go on a bad path. And if we're fortunate enough to develop, to discover some humility, we can um, get back to our senses and make reparations for ourselves, get back onto the right path. Um, a nation state has a lot of similarities to a personality in that sense, except the nation state transcends individual lifespans, right? So we see the U S has at different times gone through periods of perfectibility uh, improvement of itself, of its people, and of its future by creating sacrifices for the future generations. And then you have periods of decline of where, where it got onto the wrong track. And usually you'll find that those periods of corruption didn't come naturally, but came through a lot of effort. There's a lot of work that was required to set the, the U.S. on a different path. And if you look at who takes over usually the, the positions of power structures after the death of a, or the murder of an Abraham Lincoln, and in my books, I've gone through how that was orchestrated by British intelligence working with Confederate intelligence in Montreal, Canada, where I live. Sorry about that. If you look at what type of machine took power with Lincoln's murder, and especially McKinley's murder 35 or so years later in 1901, 
there was uh, you, you can get a sense of, of how the U.S. was brought into a sort of power relationship with its arch nemesis, the British Empire. And this is the case with Teddy Roosevelt, with increasingly Woodrow Wilson was a reemergence of a racist impulse where the slave power, the slaveocracy of this of the Confederate South was re- repowered. Things like the KKK were created, protected and that blossomed for an internal corruption, along with things like a secret police force set up under Teddy Roosevelt's called that came to be known as the FBI. And, and also like a, an idea of an Anglo-American special relationship, that it is our racist Anglo-Saxon rights with the British to rule the world together. Um, that was, again, what, what was brought in after McKinley was killed. And same thing when Franklin Roosevelt died, who was against imperialism. He Franklin Roosevelt, just like McKinley or Warren Harding or even Lincoln, had a vision of destroying the hereditary structures and empires from the earth by helping poor countries who had been victimized to develop the means, not just give them money or give them some fish, but provide them the means to learn how to fish, to, to give them industrial uh, sovereignty through large-scale loans that would be internationalized. And when Roosevelt died, same sort of thing happened. You know, the the patriots who understood the nature of what this this corruption was in Wall Street with with military intelligence, with the FBI and everything else, they were purged. All of FDR's allies who shared his vision of a U.S.-China-Russia alliance for the post-war age that would help poor countries develop their infrastructure along the lines of what we saw with the, the Tennessee Valley Authority inside of the United States. I mean, people like Kwame Nkrumah, leaders of the Pan-African movement, leaders from South America came, right, in the 1930s to study how did America go from backwater illiteracy in the Tennessee and the, much of the South to becoming an industrial aerospace pioneer through things like the rural electrification projects that were funded by not Wall Street, but the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, which became sort of a, a government entity that acted much like a national bank should act. That was all undone when Roosevelt died a little bit too early, I might add, under very questionable circumstances. No autopsy was done. So anybody who tries to just tell me, just don't think about it, it was a brain hemorrhage or heart failure or something. There was never an autopsy. So I don't care what people say. That's You can't know that. Um, But what you can know is that Stalin did tell Churchill's son, Elliot, that it was Churchill's people who uh, did it, just like they had been trying, as, as Stalin is, is recorded in this interview, as having said, just like he uh, suspected they were also doing the same to him. Um, you know, you've got a lot of circumstantial evidence, but the, the key point of evidence isn't so much the, the conspiracy theory side of things. It's really what changed policy-wise. And sure enough, when Truman came in, just like when, when Teddy came in as the you know notoriously corrupt, idiotic uh, vice president under McKinley, same thing with, with Truman who was, again, a racist little man. He was an Anglophile. He, he adored how the British were able to just dominate the world. And, you know, they purged the OSS, got rid of all of FDR's allies in positions of influence, and very quickly created things like the CIA in 1947, the Truman Doctrine, to start encouraging the U.S. instead of working with its allies that it, it, were, it, it needed to put the fascist machine down, like China and Russia, who, again suffered the most in World War II fighting fascism, they were now going to be relabeled as the new global supervillains. And Churchill was was more than happy to oblige by coming to Missouri and giving his famous Iron Curtain speech on how the British orchestrated this Iron Curtain, much like what we see today with, you know, things like the Democracy Summit, (laughs) which 
half of the world's countries are not invited. They've been excluded from this new democracy summit that's now happening this week. Again, a new Iron Curtain idea of taking the people that you worked with and making them your enemies. And bombs were unnecessarily dropped after FDR died onto a defeated Japan. Um, this is very well known that uh, Japan had already begun backdoor peace negotiations to try to like surrender with and save face. That was all ignored and bombs were unnecessarily dropped as a, as a real statement to the Soviets and to anybody, frankly, that the new game in town was not going to be FDR's vision of a, of a world of international new deals, building and ending poverty, according to the idea of the four freedoms, you know, which Henry Wallace shared, as did Henry, Harry Dexter White, the first founder of the IMF, who was working very closely with Wallace and FDR, again, who also died mysteriously in 1948. So again, there was this huge battle and there's these incredible stories in the early days, that, especially the early 15 years, 16 years after World War II had ended, which I try to tell in Act 3 of my book. Uh, so thanks. Yeah, we're particularly focused, of course, on the money issues yeah. and bringing it forward to what, how it's relevant today. It seems to me that the two Americas we have today, or the, the side that's sort of the imperial side, is no longer one monarch. It's fascism, really. I mean, it's a, cor- a corporate takeover, or big big corporations are in power together. So we've got the World Economic Forum. So just following the fi- finances, it seems to me that that same money power is still basically in control, or, or maybe it's the same mindset. I don't know. But they never really gave up. I mean, not the British, the nice British people that we know. That's not what we're talking about. But the British money power, the the British banking power never really gave up. I mean, they their whole model, of course, is, well, what I write about is that they, they create the money. I mean, banks in general create the money uh, as loans, and they always require more back than they put out there. So invariably they're going to wind up with all the property, with all the yeah. money. So, yeah. and, you know, eventually it get, get the debt gets to be too big or you have too much speculation. Like in 1929, we had the same thing going on that, mm-hmm. that we had in the, two, you know, 2008, where you have all the speculation and then suddenly it collapses and the insiders who still have money uh, can buy up every, you know, buy things up cheaply. And right, we're seeing that in spades right now, where mm. they're, the billionaire class is buying up everything. They're buying up the land, they're buying up the water, and they're calling it, <laughs> um, you know, for, for the benefit of, of nature, which obviously is not true. So, yeah. so we are going to be in the position of you will own nothing and be happy. If we're happy, it's because they're going to be pumping us full of drugs. Because we're not, you know, I mean, it's not our nature to be happy with having nothing and having no so right. You'll have a nice little plot of land in your alternative world uh, run by, you know, Mark yeah, Zuckerberg. Yeah. Our machines. Um, yeah, which you can now, yeah, they're saying you can now invest in these plots of land and, and you can now have like real estate speculation in this alternative virtual universe of in the of metaverse. Oh, I didn't in the metaverse, that. you can now own land and, and get, you know, yeah. So they're creating a new speculative bubble, even further detached from reality, if that was possible. I did, I thought it was about as far removed from reality as it could be <laughs> with modern derivatives, but no, they're going further. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and one thing interesting you wrote about was uh, that FDR was not a Keynesian and that Keynes was really 
another one of these big Brit, uh, you, you know, the British money people. So do you want to explain that, what the dichot real dichotomy is versus what we've been led to believe? Yeah, that'll freak a lot of people out. And it, and it does. Uh, it pisses a lot of people off when I bring this up. But, I, you know, that's that's uh, chapter uh, 16, The Ugly Truth of John Maynard Keynes and the Battle of Bretton Woods. Um, it's a longer uh, chapter in my book. But no, yeah, it, there's been a you 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 touched on the World Economic Forum, so I'm just going to run with that for a second. Um, but you know, there's not just the idea that you'll own nothing and be and and be happy in a great reset, but there's an idea of a great narrative that's also been launched, the Great Narrative Project that has been launched by Klaus Schwab, uh, bringing together the world's billionaires and philosophers, at least those who are acceptable to the you know the class that they're beholden to, to to spin new comprehensive, cohesive narratives for the future of humanity. Um, a lot of transhumanists are involved in this as well. Um, and this gets, it gets nasty. But narrative, this is not a new thing. So narrative construction and the weaving of tales is a part of our human collective experience. Um, the question has always been, are the narratives that we are being, uh, that are being created um, stories that edify and give us better access to our full potentials of actualizing our moral conscience, our minds that are in tune with our, our conscience and our hearts, which is what, you know, what they call a well-integrated person, a mature person, right? Where our bodies are always going to grow, but it's, it's not necessarily the case that our minds and our emotions will also mature in harmony with our bodies. That's a maybe. It should be. We're happier when they do, but it's it's rarer. And when you live under an empire, and unfortunately, most of human society, we've never escaped empire. We've always had this latching onto us as a parasite for recorded human civilization. And it's taken different forms, but there's certain invariants, certain common characteristics. One of those is the crushing of our ability to actualize our true creative potential, our goodness, as much as possible. And so we're told, you know, yeah, we've had these Leonardo da Vinci's and we've had these Beethoven's and Kepler's. And, but those are the special geniuses that are, that are not the normal. Everybody else is destined to a life of normal. But it's like, what is normal, right? Maybe those have, have actually been natural, normal people and the masses right? What is popular has tended to be the unnatural state of those who have not been given the ability to properly experience who they are. Da Vinci, for example, never had to compartmentalize anything, right? He learned early on how to find a love and a passion for <laughs> truth in a very flexible way. He saw the universality in music, in optics, in machinery, in painting. And so you have what are called Renaissance people, right? Um, and I'm, I'm doing this in a circuitous way, but I'm going to get back to your original <laughs> I promise. So the great narrative thing is really do these narratives, these stories bring that help us bring that about because some stories do that. You know, um, I'd say many of the best religions, what makes them good and powerful is that they have stories that will allow people enhance our ability to tap into those better sides of ourselves. And then or will it be based upon the an imperial power structure or, or imperial set of high priests who will weave stories that will destroy that ability. So I'm saying all of this in a, in a nonlinear way, and I'm so sorry. I'm going to get back to your, your Keynes question, okay? So we've been told FDR was a Keynesian. That's what we were told. Um, and in my chapter, in several chapters, I get across how not only was FDR anti-Keynesian, but Keynes also directly thought FDR was a, an incompetent uh, when it comes to economics, and he wrote as much. 
It's recorded by Francis Perkins, uh, a very close ally of FDR. FDR also thought and openly stated that Keynes was not an not a real economist, but simply a mathematician with fetishes. Um, and when you start looking at the real Keynes as a eugenicist, somebody who was a, a devout member of the eugenic society, uh, who was a, a complete racist, and he, you could read his quotes that I cite. This guy really, really, really was was up there. Uh, a, a devout Malthusian believed completely that the purpose of government and and banking. Well, he thought the purpose of government was to be subservient to the higher supranational interests of finance of central banks. So he was a central banker, and he wasn't. He didn't believe in the nation state. He thought that that had to ultimately go, but that ultimately the purpose of law and economic policy was to advance population control. He was also a pedophile too, but that's another story. Um, now in Bretton Woods, he was there representing the British Empire. That was his position. So, you know, Churchill on the one hand represented a more right-wing conservative view of the old school British Empire of, you know, hail Britannia, Britannia rules the, rave, the waves, crush, crush the natives, you know, the, the reds and the, he was just openly just vitriolically racist and bad. He, old school British imperialists, whereas Keynes was more of what you you consider the uh, the Fabian society, play it slow, be subtle, be more sophisticated approach, which is ultimately what won out. So they tried, you know, like World War One, and I get through how World War One and World War Two were artificial orchestrations to destroy a process internationally, and it's all about starting start global, just like in 1776, you know. Start with the global chemistry first. What were the terms shaping the world? And then go down and isolate and, and analyze the parts from the whole first, right? Um, so it was the same thing in with the murder of McKinley. It wasn't just McKinley dying. McKinley represented an international movement uh, who were all working to bring about a world of cooperating sovereign nation-state republics that would be cooperating around big projects like rail specifically. The, the Trans-Siberian Railway was a big one modeled on the US Transcontinental Railway, which was completed. People who were representing FDR, um, at the time it was primarily Morgenthau and, uh, and Harry Dexter White, they were successful in, uh, in not giving, an in well, they gave some inches, but they made sure that Keynes didn't get what he wanted. And instead it was the, the post-war currency was, was premised around a fixed exchange rate to um, make it impossible to conduct uh, currency speculation. That went, that went back a very long time, uh, speculative warfare, currency speculation to as a form of keeping your victim country on their knees and not standing on their own two feet. The right of every country to have access to protectionism was also enshrined as a principle of, of action. And the idea of the IMF and the World Bank in those days was to serve as simply as instruments to be kind of like international uh, reconstruction finance corporations, to, to provide long-term credit for, for big projects that would pull people out of poverty and, and provide the means of helping yourself, right, around the world. And, uh, and luckily, Keynes lost that battle. But as I mentioned before, you know, these allies of FDR were purged. Wallace was ousted and Harry Dexter White was campaigning for Wallace when Wallace was basically fighting against the Cold War doctrine and trying to say, no, let's actually work with Russia, work with China like FDR intended. And by him doing that and also warning that the fascists in America who had funded Hitler, he was actually there's speeches where he's actually calling them out while he's Commerce Secretary, the former vice president under FDR. He's downgraded, but he's still a power. And he's literally calling out these same fascists 
are preparing for Anglo-American imperialism and a war with Russia that will destroy the world. And he's he's basically saying saying it openly. And that's why he's fired. And he runs for president. And Harry Harry Dexter White, the first IMF director, is campaigning for him. And uh, yeah, he dies um, after he's being called a red commie traitor and, and being dragged over into the House of Un-American Activities. Um, as are many of the, the greatest American patriots. They're all they're they're systematically destroyed and slandered beyond belief. But uh, no, Keynes certainly was not what we're told he is. And, and FDR was not a Keynesian. Um, he was a, a direct follower of the American system of political economy. And I, I have a chapter in there going through the networks that were working with Roosevelt from both parties, Democrat and Republican, who represented the Abraham Lincoln, McKinley, and even Warren Harding policy orientation towards pro-protectionism, large-scale credit, all of these things that define the American system of political economy. Um, so yeah, he was not that. And so the whole Keynes thing was, was created to obscure that, as is the opposing view that uh, you know, Americans are told you have a choice. You could either be a Keynesian, which is like, that's usually it means you're going to become a Democrat, or you're going to become a, a follower of the Austrian school of von Hayek, and then you're going to be probably you know, a Republican. And we're told fit into one of these two boxes, you know, but it's like both of these boxes. What was Frederick von Hayek? The whole Hayek versus Keynes debate was cooked up at the end of 1932 when it was apparent that Roosevelt was about to win the presidency. And it was created as a way to create an artificial polarization, right? Where you're told either you're for absolute individual liberty and that's going to define what's good is, is the government just getting off your back and letting everybody just do what they want and let the market hidden hands, invisible hands organize themselves mystically, which never works, by the way. That's even when Adam Smith was commissioned by the British Empire to promote that idea with the Wealth of Nations in 1776, not a coincidence. He was working for the British Empire. He was commissioned to promote and to create an argument for why the United States should not have any say over its economic destiny and just let the markets be. And meanwhile, the British East India Company and the, and the private financial houses they don't get, they don't care. They're happy to walk into your house when your guard is down, your door is unlocked and just steal everything. That's why free trade existed, at least on that scale. The, the repackaging of Adam Smith under the, the Habsburg dynasty, under Karl Menger, right? The guy who created the Austrian school, it was just a repackaging of Smith on behalf of, he was the retainer of the Habsburg empire. That's why they call it the Austrian school. All of these guys are von this, von that, Ludwig von Mises, Friedrich von Hayek. They're all like part of the nobility try to promote our freedoms. And it's like, no, these guys were all, this is a false debate created by the London School of Economics. And everyone was told either you're for big government arbitrarily spending the way Keynes says to just make the economy's engine rev again when you have an economic crisis, or let the government just get it off your back, let people just do what they're going to do and spend what they're going to spend. And that will just stimulate the economy. Ne neither one works. They're both traps. You will, you will be raped in both cases. <laughs> and that is indeed what happened in, uh, throughout the, the remaining, you know, 70 years of the Cold War. That's Matthew Errett, editor-in-chief of the Canadian Patriot Review and co-founder of the Montreal-based Rising Tide Foundation. We'll complete this conversation with Matt and Ellen and dig deeper into the historical dynamics of the United States founding and economics on the next edition of It's Our Money. Public banks have been making an outsized impact on investments in green and renewable energies around the world. 
Our guest now is Dr. Thomas Marwa, who was on this program a few weeks ago. He rejoins us today to take a closer look at how these banks make those impacts. My conversation with Thomas was taken from a TV interview in which we reviewed his new book, Public Banks, Decarbonization, Definancialization, and Democratization. In areas like sort of global decarbonization or green and just transitions, I often say that you know, public banks are the linchpin for this, that we're not going to get there unless public banks are in some way involved or in many ways catalyzing meaning this change for decarbonization or global green and just transformations. And there are many ways that public banks, both development banks or infrastructure banks, but also you know, uh, more local community banks that are still publicly owned or cooperatively owned, are, are at the forefront of this. Mm-hmm. And infrastructure is certainly one way. And, and it's uh, historic. You know, in many cases, public banks have been involved in infrastructure, the building of roads, the building of transportation, municipal infrastructure, um, hospitals, schools, you know, the list goes on. We know, you know, we know all of that. Um, in terms of offering supportive, what we can call patient or long-term loans at affordable rates, at conditions that enable public authorities or municipalities or states or national governments even to provide the infrastructure that society needs stably without risk of the investor pulling out and destabilizing the project or demanding certain conditions of it that then undermine the the ability of a community to build the best infrastructure possible. And there's, you know, there's so many examples we can look at, to be honest. Um, I often like pointing to, there's this bank called the Nordic Investment Bank, which is a multinational bank, relatively small, you know, invests about five, six billion uh, euros a year in the Nord, it's owned by the Nordic communities plus the Baltic ones. Uh, it's called, it's Nordic, N-O-R-D-I-K? Yeah, the Nordic Investment Bank, okay. uh, Sweden, nice. Finland, Norway, Iceland. Um, uh-huh. Uh, forgetting what country. <laughs> anyway, um, but they they they've invested in sort of green, sustainable um, uh, hydro energy in, in in a northern community to supply green, renewable energy to several municipalities. But they also built the station, um, and there's I have pictures of it in some work that I've done in the past. I think a 2017 paper for the Transnational Institute, where they built the station where they're generating it. And, and got a special architect to make it beautiful. And it is yeah. a stunning installation yeah. of renewable energy. And their logic was to inspire the youth of the country to hike up there and see how you can generate wow. renewable energy. And then it become that in itself become a transformational moment uh, of, of, of what you, know, you can do with public money for the future. You can look at other institutions uh, there's an, another brand new institution called the, the Finnish um, Climate Fund that has mm-hmm. set very firm floor where basically it says we're not going to fund any investment, public or private, unless you first demonstrate to us that you're going to decarbonize the environment. And so it sets this condition uh-huh. as a foundation for investment and then moves forward from there, uh, you know, in terms of looking at, you know, the, the viability of it, what kind of impact it's going to have for jobs and so on. But they, in many ways, it's, it's, it's endless. Um, you know, in, in 
we we can as far as our sort of imagination and what our demands of our community are we can craft a public bank to confront and address those challenges in ways that are green and societally equitable and sustainable financially and even profitable for the community in which it, it exists yeah so the in the us uh green banks what are called green banks uh are basically public private partnerships or they're, they they have some perhaps some public funding but then as an agency it will go out and seek private partnership uh, to bring to create a profit making uh, opportunity for investment uh, and uh, so so they're not public banks uh, they're green in the sense that they have this commitment to invest in this sector but by and large, the United States really doesn't have a really robust uh, public commitment to building green infrastructure. It not yet. Uh, there's it's certainly you know talked about a lot, and we all know it, you know we know it needs to happen. And there's a lot of lip service to. Uh, I would just say uh, you know there are some some bills in Congress. Uh, that would move this forward. But uh, in many cases, the public-private partnership is the model that the United States uh, is, and that the legislators and, and policy people refer to, because they don't understand what a public bank uh, could, could be doing. Well, uh, you had mentioned just now the Nordic in the Nordic Bank, this beautiful public-public uh, uh, partnership, where the public bank partnered with a public agency. Give us an example of how that might work, let's say here in New Jersey, uh, in terms of working with, um, we, have a, we have a rail system called New Jersey Transit that needs uh, that a lot of upgrading. Uh, we want, to, there's a desire on the part of uh, a lot of uh, citizen groups to electrify our, our transportation fleet and so forth. How would that work if we had a state bank uh, to be able to support that transition through those agencies? Wow, that's a big question. Well, and and I, I've got big ideas on that. And Great, I, I, sure. <laughs> I mean, whatever, in these kinds of situations, I like to point to the, the possibilities uh, of public-public collaboration. And um, my, my view on public banks is that they should be really become a hub, a center of expertise, not only of, of expertise and knowledge on how to coordinate these really massive kind of projects of electrification of, of you know, public transport, it's big, right? Yeah. But they also, of course, as a bank, become the source of finance, of capital for that. And one way you can begin to look at this, banks, of course, magnify existing money. So they have, they'll have an initial sort of, you know, capital reserve, but then they can lend out 5, 10, 15, 20 times that. Mm -hmm. And so they can, you know, magnify scarce resources. But they also, and this is the model in much of Europe, is that when they need additional capital, then they reach out into the international financial markets, and then they begin to pull in uh, into international flows of finance, but on their own terms, right? They offer bonds and they say, you know, we'll pay X percent. And then the uh, financiers come in and say, okay, we'll buy up your bonds. Often and increasingly so, they're labeled as green bonds. So then that provides a sort of check mark for the, for the investment That's funds, for the pension funds and so on. Yeah. That money goes into the bank and then they can then they direct them that that green bond then goes into green investments like, say, a new solar 
uh, farm or or a large offshore wind uh, installation, which are expensive and and significant, you know, in terms of their their capacity. And so they the in that sense the 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 public bank really becomes a center of coordinating that and creating a, a, a large scale investment like a, a wind farm that then can feed into the the greening of public transports in ways that is supportive it creates you know long-term investment in it it creates jobs in terms of building the wind farms and then it supports the community in terms of providing green public transport that is decarbonized um, and and you know and hopefully creating some knock-on benefits in terms of accessibility and setting conditions around the types of loans they provide and so on for both jobs but also in terms of decarbonization there are a number of ways that this can also connect other public public collaborations you can think about the ways i've often talked about the ways that you know public water provisioning is is costly and and has, it takes a lot of energy to pump around water around communities right mm -hmm. but they also have big fields they often store water or provide the pumping services you set solar panels there and begin to generate green energy on already existing public land to green the pumping of, of energy around. You can look to public pension funds to begin investing through the public bank into those. And we saw this in COVID, where a number, in, particularly in Europe, um, through the public banks, uh, public pension funds or uh, public private or cooperative insurers we're directly investing in the public banks to support their efforts to respond to COVID. Hmm. Very similar practices we can learn from in terms of responding to the climate crisis. And it's very low hanging fruit. It's something that can be coordinated as a matter of policy, but it takes a political vision or a political will uh, when willing to sort of create that legacy. And the public bank really is about creating a legacy. And we see this around the world that where they were created, of many, many cases decades ago, when the crisis comes, they're in place and capable of responding. And without that, then you, you get all kinds of like the messed up responses like we see in the United Kingdom or in the US, where you know the response support funds are getting hived off for all kinds of nefarious projects and so on. And they're not going to the public purpose for which they were meant. Yeah, we certainly saw it in a great example in North Dakota. Not only was the emergence of the Bank of North Dakota 102 years ago a response to the abusive, exploitive uh, aspect of Wall Street finance, but not too many years after it was founded, the, the uh, a fire and flood on the Grand on Grand Forks wiped out uh, the the uh, North Dakota city, as well as the twin city across the river in Minneapolis or in Minnesota, uh, the public bank in North Dakota stepped right in. They were there before uh, anybody else and said, hey, here's some money, clean it up. Let's get things back in order. Uh, and whereas the and they only lost three percent of their of their uh, population across the way. Minnesota had to go to New York, had to pay high cost, and they lost about almost 20 percent of their population. So a huge uh, difference uh, in potential when the people are in uh, in in the driver's seat. You yeah. mentioned I would really emphasize that well, and because it is such an important, yeah, like sort of foundational difference that public purpose. And I hear this time and again within public banks that at times of crisis we 
function according to our public purpose, in the case of the better public banks, and that this is important. It's an ethos, a culture of the bank. Mm-hmm. And in, you know, just as one past, you know, interview I did many years ago, at a time of crisis, I was talking to a local bank manager, a public bank in another country, and said, yeah, when it starts raining, we don't put our umbrella away. Right. And in terms of the public bank, when the crisis hits, that's exactly you know, one of the moments when we really need to have this. And we're in a crisis now, a climate crisis, a COVID crisis. And the evidence speaks for itself that those countries with public banks and public banks that are accountable and transparent and function according to public purpose are making a fundamental difference in those countries and communities capacity to respond to both COVID and the climate crisis. You mentioned uh, public banks that are well run uh, and have a foundational root commitment. Uh, Are there what kind of examples do you have for public banks that don't work with that kind of integrity? So in we see some of this became exposed in the lead up to the 2079 global financial crisis. Mm -hmm. And uh, in Europe, you see some of the local Caja Populares, like community banks, or in Germany, there is some sort of publicly uh, owned or partially publicly owned investment banks or landed banks that have begun to to speculate Mm. on subprime mortgages. And the problem there is that they were given, um, they began to take on a mandate to maximize profitability rather than maximize public purpose. And once that happens, then public banks begin to function very much like private profit-seeking banks, and they often get into trouble. Um, any observer of public banks can also point to a number of historical examples where they've certainly been abused by political authorities right. through corruption and so on and caused problems. And this is precisely why that last D in my title, democratization, is so important. Mm-hmm. You absolutely must demand of past, existing, and future public banks that they are accountable and transparent and create mechanisms both within that bank for democratic governance, but also sort of transparent rules that really enforce that and make that a legal requirement that public banks have to respond and report to the public on its activities and be accountable and responsible for what they do. There's no, there's no avoiding it. We must actually, we must demand that of, of new public banks. And, and that's where your word just comes in uh, for me, uh, that our banks should be green, but also just. And so that part of the agenda of the bank is to in, reclaim, recover, recoup, reinvigorate, uh, renew uh, our uh, relationships, our commitment to each other in the form of uh, of public policy. And of course, in public policy can't happen without the financial resources uh, to do that. Um, one of the one of the aspects of the loans that you were talking about was conditionality. Again, that conditionality seems to reflect that. Could you talk a little bit about uh, how a public bank would condition uh, being a pass through for other investments? Uh, you touched on it a minute ago. Sure. The conditionality is is a, a means of enacting or effecting public purpose and the goals and aspirations of the community. So if you have, and this, this has been an increasing discussion within the public bank movement in the US, but it's part of the way public banks function around much of the world. So for example, if it's public purpose, if it has a green mandate or a mission, 
the public banks like the German KFW or the Finnish funds, or in fact, the French, the, the Dutch, <laughs> let's go on. I give you any number of public banks that do this, set uh, conditions on in terms of the loan that they're offering um, that they must decarbonize. They must reduce net carbon emissions in one way or another. There are other ones where they also, you know, we can begin speaking about conditionalities that set requirements for the recipient to ensure just labor requirements so that you know there are permanent long-term jobs out of that come with the investment. So if you're building a large you know, wind farm off the coast of New Jersey, well, let's make sure that those jobs are, are permanent long-term um, and sustainable jobs. Similarly, we can also begin to discuss things like um, you know, gender equity, uh, representation, and and be building those into the loans and in form of conditionality and you know depending on the relationship with the government they can the government itself can you know create all kinds of incentives to really drive loans in a particular direction and to encourage society to to move along so again uh, the german kfw mm. will often provide loans to municipalities or to industry uh, based on a decarbonization or a sustainability agenda already at preferable long-term supportive rates. But if the if the municipality or the industry exceeds the expectations of the loan, then they get a, even a you know a top-up bonus right? wow. uh, in terms of the repayment. And so it, it really is uh -huh. able to bend and and really begin to reshape society and, and markets and the ways in which we produce energy or use energy in a more sustainable and just uh, trajectory. Uh, a real push um, that I've been seeing both from within uh, municipalities and communities, but also within public banks for things like retrofitting. So it's great, you know, to put heat pumps in houses or to change, you know, decarbonize or move to electrical heating of large buildings. But until you begin to retrofit those buildings and, and, and make the buildings themselves energy efficient, much of that you know, investment in, in, in better, more efficient heating units is going to be wasted. I, I think there's such a promising and important role that public banks can play in terms of retrofitting community house, so existing public housing stock, so social housing. Uh, Encourage that in new builds uh, in terms of high quality energy efficient homes, but also um, in terms of industrial retrofits, providing the kinds of you know, loans, supportive programs, but also building up the expertise and the know-how of how to enact right. and to affect that kind of change within the bank right. is an absolutely key element to the future of public banks. And really, if you're thinking in a place like New Jersey of a, of a, a starting point for a new public bank, well, create one with a mission to retrofit houses and you've got an immediate market You've got an immediate need. You've got something that's going to respond to the, the necessities of, 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 of transitioning uh, to a low carbon future. And you're going to be creating long-term sustainable jobs and knowledge within your community. I mean, it's a win, 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 win type yes. of you know, uh, you know, uh, project that kicks off a public bank, gives it a project, builds its expertise and capacity, and connects it to its community so that bank is is seen to be doing something for the people who own it right away rather than 
you know, going off in some obscure corner where who knows what the public bank is doing. Let's connect it to community. Let's show that it's doing something for us and, and with us. I just, you know, I'm, I, I'm not American by birth, but I'm connected very much to the community and, and to the, the movements within the U.S. And I think there is a real opportunity here in New Jersey and, and in many you know, states across the you know, United States of America to begin creating this legacy for the future of the capacity to democratically command the money and resources in your community to create the kind of change, positive, green, and just future that you want to see. And without doing this, it's, you're, you're, you're spinning your wheels in mud. And it really is sort of one of those necessary things that has to occur, uh, you know, to create the change you want. And I would just say, you know, jump on board. It's time to, you know, really uh, you know, solidify that political will behind it and, and move forward. You know, the U.S. is kind of pulling up the tail end in this public banking world, but uh, you've, you've beautifully described uh, how public banks are about creating a different bottom line, not about profitability, but about relationship around society, around sustainability, regenerative spirit, uh, and also integrity, transparency, accountability. These are all things that we don't have in our financial matrix right now. Uh, so as New Jersey and the other states around the country continue their discovery of how to do this, um, we really appreciate your leadership, Thomas, in, uh, in showing the way and articulating the particular aspects uh, that can be done, realized, and, and aimed for as we move forward. Thanks once again, Thomas. My pleasure. Dr. Thomas Marwa is a research associate and a lecturer at the University of London. He's a global scholar and academic on public banks and uh, has a new book called Public Banks, Decarbonization, Definancialization, and Democratization. Well, that's it for this edition of It's Our Money with Ellen Brown. Our thanks to our guests, our sponsor, Public Banking Associates, and to you for listening. Be sure to check out Ellen's latest writings on the economy and the changing world of money by visiting ellenbrown.com. And for more information on public banking, visit publicbankinginstitute.org. For information on how local and state government leaders can obtain professional insight and counsel about public banks from key national experts, visit publicbankingassociates.com. I'm Walt McCree. See you next time on It's Our Money with Ellen Brown.